when leadership is tested and stakes are high, he used to constantly say to me, you cannot make a decision to keep your job. You have to make a decision in service of those that you serve in your job. And if you're living your values and your decision is right, you have to accept the consequence of the outcomes and be okay with it. As long as I can remember, the sense I needed to prove my worth and competency was implicitly built into everything I did. Though not obvious, the sense that my need to prove on repeat was a given and jumbled into all the other expectations I carried. Shoot, even continue to carry. Now I often compete against myself and others, especially when I'm working out or playing a sport. I like to prove I can reach a goal or accomplish a milestone. And I've played this little internal game as far back as I can remember. It feels innate, but when I spend most of my time trying to prove my worth, my proving shifts to where I'm looking for safety and validation from external sources. And this kind of proving delegates my worth to others. And when I engage in this particular kind of proving, I end up in what I call the not enough loop. The not enough loop is when you respond to feeling the pain of shame and look to others for validation, you're worthy. And the not enough loop is rooted in the belief that if you can change or fix yourself based on these external metrics deemed the standard of your enough, <laughs> you'll get relief and feel more secure and capable when in fact it actually only deepens feelings of insecurity, comparison, scarcity, and more, which loops you back to looking outside of you for confirmation of your enough on repeat. The not enough loop gets its fuel by putting all the pressure on you to change and blames you for feeling less than in the first place. And the not enough loop also neglects to take into account that our feelings of unworthiness and lack of safety are rooted in the systems and narratives that are invested in, <laughs> in fact, count on us to externalize our worthiness. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Though my worthiness never depreciates, it sure feels like it when I'm in the not enough loop, when my focus on proving goes beyond the desire to earn trust and moves to proving my worthiness, I know I've arrived in the not enough loop. Now, I suspect I'm not the only one that gets stuck in the not enough loop. For me, it shows up in the many spaces I do life as a business owner, a mom, a partner, community member, a person of faith. (laughs) a human. And when proving shifts from earning trust to looking elsewhere for proof of my worthiness, oof. Now I enter the not enough loop with thoughts like, what makes me better than everyone else? Or if I don't get picked, I'm not worthy. And here's a doozy. I have to always prove I'm working. And side note, I think this one feels especially true for those who are service providers or in traditional corporate spaces. And here's another one. I need to prove I am invested in my family and my work equally. Yeah, it's like the vice grip of the not enough loop there. The not enough loop is a place I suspect many of you are very familiar with, though maybe never overtly identified. 
Now, I lose focus on the truth about my worthiness when I end up handing over way too much power to others, making me vulnerable to compromising my values. I also understand my struggle to shift out of the not enough loop involves getting very clear on the biases, the pressures, the lack of autonomy I have and shoot continue to experience from leaders, organizations, government, and places of worship too. And when our proving falls into the not enough loop in our work and personal relationships, we're usually in a toxic space. I often hear language like imposter syndrome used as a response to understandable questioning, self-doubt, and real-life struggles in spaces that don't value authenticity. Many in the personal development space rush to label, even pathologize discomfort as imposter syndrome. Ugh, frustrates me so much. I want to press delete on this blanket phrase that shuts down empathy and shuts down spaces that allow for honest conversations and questioning. Now, Rishika Toshina and Jodi Anbury refreshingly call BS to the use of imposter syndrome in their Harvard Business Review article, Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. And they state, imposter syndrome is especially prevalent in biased, toxic cultures that value individualism and overwork. Sound familiar? (laughs) And when we continue to shut down our discomfort, around struggle with these blanket labels like imposter syndrome that place the responsibility solely on the individual, we only feel the not enough loop. I have a lot of compassion and grace for those like me who still get sucked into the not enough loop, which shows up more frequently if you don't identify as a straight white cis male. And when you identify as female, research shows One of the likely catalysts of the not enough loop results also from gender bias. Joan C. Williams' research has brought to light core components of gender bias. One of these patterns she identified is called prove it again, which says, my mistakes carry more weight than a man's mistakes and my success often get attributed to luck while a male's success often gets attributed to his competency. It also says my ideas don't carry weight and are often overlooked in the presence of a man, unless shared by a male. And it also says, I'll receive more criticism on how I follow the rules and the systems compared to a man. So my guest today, she gets the grind of toxic proving, gender biases, and all the things that feed the not enough loop. Wendy Colley is a former Fortune 200 executive with a passion for triple bottom line organizations, who are customer focused while having employee oriented philosophies as a cornerstone for transformative, sustainable, and profitable growth. Wendy believes that organizations have a responsibility to improve the lives of their customers, employees, and communities, and that success is measured by both stakeholders and shareholders, no matter the size of the company. The rise of her career catapulted at Starbucks Coffee Company, where she served various leadership roles over 18 years, both in the States and in Europe, with the responsibility for company operations, licensed stores, and international subsidiaries during her tenure. After leading iconic purpose-inspired brands for more than 30 years, Wendy founded Better Way Business because she saw a need for high-growth organizations to better integrate their strategy and culture and to be more progressive and inclusive. 
After founding her consulting business, she has since held interim C-suite roles at companies like Salt and Straw, the best ice cream, so good, and Evergreen Salads, and continues to coach CEOs and executive leaders. Now pay attention to what Wendy discovered about herself and her work when she was trying to prove her abilities on all fronts. Listen to what a mentor shared with Wendy about choosing her values over her job. And notice the attention and pace Wendy gave to hiring and building teams and how candidates would prove if they were a good fit or not. All right, now please welcome Wendy Colley to the Unburdened Leader podcast. You're listening to the Unburdened Leader, and I am so grateful to welcome my guest today, Wendy Colley. Wendy, welcome to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I am thrilled to be here. Well, I've been wanting to have this conversation with you since I started the podcast, so I am so excited to dig in. And I want to start off by talking about how so many people have had major career shifts over the last couple of years, whether they were looking for it or not. And you experienced a hard stop in your career when you parted ways and left a job you loved as CEO for New Seasons Market in Portland back in 2018, pre-COVID. Tell me what was going through your mind at this time. Yeah, wow, Rebecca, this could be like a mini series. But thank you for asking the question because it was a really important transition in my life and a really important time. You know, I would start by saying I loved my job. I was so incredibly fortunate to be part of a progressive and beloved industry leading company that always put people and planet and community livelihood in the forefront of every decision. And that was part of what attracted me there and part of what inspired me as a leader within the organization. And You know, I would say that in any leadership position, our values at times get tested. And especially in a progressive company that is looking at trying to show that you can operate a company in a different way in the world to better both stakeholders and shareholders, your values get tested time and time again against kind of conventional corporate wisdom, if you will. And those values get tested when stakes are are really high. And without getting into all the long sort of details, I think a lot of leaders at moments in their careers experience this moment of like, things are really good until they're not, you know, for a variety of reasons. And um, sometimes it creeps up on you, or sometimes it's like a freaking two by four that smacks you over the head and makes sure that you realize like things are, there's a seismic shift happening and you need to pay attention. And I call those, you know, in those moments, kind of significant life moments. In those moments, you have to make a decision of how you want to show up as a leader. And for me, there was all these seismic shifts that were happening in the company that were outside of my control. The industry had shifted dramatically and valuations had gone down and we were having some labor challenges. We weren't hitting our numbers and our goals. And so it was just this like really intense time between stakeholders and shareholders And the solutions and the complications just became more complex and they were competing with each other. And it was really a strain on myself and my, all of the teams, to be honest with you. And so, you know, I would tell you that there was this conflict between my need to please, right? This need as a leader that I have to want to prove that I can, I can handle it all and I can do it all and I can make it happen and we can weather the storm and, and this need to prove right? That you want to prove that you're a leader that can 
add value to all of your constituents. I realized I got to this place where you know, if I'm being honest, I don't think I was being very effective on all fronts because there was too many fronts to fight. And a long time ago, I had a a dear mentor who's still in my life that talked about when leadership is tested and stakes are high, you know, he used to constantly say to me, you cannot make a decision to keep your job. You have to make a decision in service of those that you serve in your job. And if you're living your values and your decision is right, you have to accept the consequence of the outcomes and be okay with it. And I realized there was too much going on and I needed to just, I needed to pick a path and not let the short term sort of upheaval and fear and demands take precedence over what I really was trying to accomplish with sustainable, equitable, inclusive practices. And so I picked my path. I let the chips fall where they may. I knew they might've been in favor with me or not in favor with me. And, but ultimately I was living my values. And soon after that, I realized it was really time for me to leave the company that I loved, but I stood with the values that I hold dear and feel good about that decision. But I think the, uh, sometimes when you have to make those decisions, you're making a decision to walk and talk your beliefs and not be boxed in to something that then keeps you in a box in the future right? That you're compromising your leadership values or you're you're quieting your voice because you feel that it's better to just work through a situation. And I didn't, I I feel good that I didn't box myself in. I stated my piece, I picked my path and the chips fell. When you say boxed in, like if you don't live your values, you can box yourself in for the future. Can you talk a little bit more about that possible choice you had and what being not choosing your values and over accommodating, proving at the expense of your values, how that boxes us in, not just in the moment, but for the future? Yeah, I think, and I will, I will be honest with you as a woman, right? I present as a woman and I do think there are times where it is even harder on on us as female leaders to be able to take a really tough position and know that the stakes are high, the risks are there, and be comfortable with that. And I would say that speaking only for myself, in my career, there have been moments where I have disagreed with people that I was reporting to or people that were, you know, shareholders or investors in companies and have expressed my position, but perhaps not been as clear and as, what is the word I'm looking for, as firm in what my beliefs are. And I've maybe quieted myself to not necessarily take a position of not being true to myself, but not vocalize what I believe needs to happen and be firm about that and understand that someone may disagree with me and that disagreement could cause a falling out. Instead, being boxed in looked like for me, oh, they know I'm good. They know my intentions. I know their intentions. I'll just be a little quieter or I'll just work around it or I'll just see if I can kind of you know, work my way into the conversation instead of really going right after it and saying, I'm not going to be put in a box. I have an opinion. I have a thought I want to share. We can have that dialogue and agree to disagree, but we have to have that dialogue. We have to get comfortable with that conflict in the middle, if that makes sense. Mm. 
well, comfortable with the conflict or at least have the capacity and the respect for the conflict. Yes. Comfort. I'm like, sometimes I'm like, my husband thinks I'm too comfortable with the conflict, yeah. but, but I think from, I hear from a lot of people, I appreciate that a lot. And, and, and one more thing I want to circle back on this powerful advice from your mentor about choosing your values and not your job. And, and I'm just, I'm still kind of digesting that a little bit and, and know that sometimes there's a lot of potentially a lot of privilege in, in choosing values over your job, but there's also a lot of, I want to say freedom, even though it could have a lot of, again, it's, it, that's a complex lean in yes. per se to, to do that. And I just, yeah, I just want for you to speak for, to that a little bit more because it sounds great. Like, yeah, I'm going to choose my values, not my job. Yeah, go team or go go me. And then it's like, whoa, but the stakes are high because I, you know, you're leading a lot of people who trust you, who value you, who are connected to you. And there's, again, a lot of hats that you wear. So when you choose values and really look at who you're serving to and not just the job yeah, there's a lot of probably stuff that comes up instinctively, like, but I need to take care of me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, just I wonder if you could talk to that a little bit more. Yeah, no, I I think that is a great call out that, you know, it is it, it was a privilege for me to be in a situation where I knew that there could be especially you know, the stakes get higher, right? As you, you know, when, as you go up in organizations as well, but the stakes are real in every job that people have. And you know, I, I, what I would say is living your values doesn't necessarily mean um, you shouldn't, it's okay if you get fired or it's okay if you walk away, right? I think living your values means you are finding a way to show up and represent your thinking and your hmm. actions and how you believe you could be at your best. And it wasn't an ultimatum that, I gave when I was CEO at New Seasons, it was a conversation about, I am not in alignment with you. And I am not in alignment with you on some things that you are thinking about. And I want to share where I sit on that and how I feel about that. And that perhaps I am not the person, if this is the path you want to continue to go down, I may not be the person that is going to choose to participate in that, or you may not choose me. And I understand not everybody has got the privilege of being in that position. However, I think we each have a responsibility to share our values and to speak our truth in a respectful, in an educational, and in a partnership way and understand that there's some risk that might be associated with that because the other person may not receive it in the way it's intended. But it is important to feel you can and you should do that. Thank you for unpacking that more. Yeah. And if we had more of those types of conversations in our country, in our world, we'd be at a very, very different place. But I appreciate this. Nice to know that there's pockets of spaces where that's still happening. So shifting, as you took an inventory of your career in life, what did this hard stop in your career bring up for you as you reflected on both your personal and professional parts of your life? Yeah, whew, it was a... It was a juicy. So kind of, you know, back to your earlier comment about how do people do this? Because it's a high risk situation, right? It, you know, I would say it brought up a lot of things. I think, first of all, you know, proving of myself has always been sort of my deep rooted driver and demon, 
right? And I think a lot of a lot of leaders and a lot of women struggle with this, right? We're trying to prove ourselves as as community members, as leaders, as moms, as wives, as you know, enter things here, right? Sisterhoods, and it's a lot of pressure. And and in this per- particular instance, I felt really good initially that I I did stand for what I believed was right. And, and I felt good initially about like, I am valued. I have, I have been a high contributor. I've made a difference in over 4,000 people's lives over the last six years. I feel good about myself. And then sort of reality kicked in and it was like, you know, that proving perfectionist side just smacked me in the face. And honestly, you know, I went through this phase of feeling like a failure and feeling like this was a setback and maybe I didn't make the right decision. And I had doubt and some depression and some anger and, and honestly, a sense of betrayal at one point. I got angry, like, wait a minute, you know, like, you, you like, this is who I am. I've been showing up who I am every day for all of these years. And suddenly I take an unpopular position on something and I'm being told I'm not valuable anymore. Like, what is that about? You know? And, and then I went through the whole, like, Oh, they didn't pick me or wait a minute, would this happen if I was a man? You know? So I went through this gamut of personal sort of emotions about whether or not I had done the right thing and, and my feeling and my need to need, like to prove myself that burden of suddenly like, wait, but I am a good person. I am a good leader. I do contribute suddenly got heightened, you know? And I think it was just because I felt a sense of loss Mm -hmm. in the process as well. As much as I triumphed, I lost. And professionally, you know, it brought up a lot too. I am the breadwinner. I've been the breadwinner for over 30 years and Suddenly it was like, what do I, what's my next steps? And what did I really love about my job? And do I recreate myself or do I go back into a space where I'm most comfortable? And am I worthy of that? You know, am I worthy of doing a job that is similar to this? You know, or am am I an imposter in this space that I thought, you know, I belonged? So, I mean, I would give you the example that right after I left the company, I got invited to go on a inaugural river rafting trip with 24 other female CEOs out of Oregon. And I called the person who was organizing it and said, I don't belong. I'm not a CEO anymore. And I remember the comment back to me was, what are you talking about? This is when you belong the most. You need to be surrounded by people who are your peer network that can lift you up and support you and guide you along this next journey. And just because you don't have a specific title from a specific company does not mean you are not the leader that you are today. And I thought, oh my gosh, you're right. Like I need to get into a different mindset. So it was quite a journey. I am so grateful for that reflection back to you. That is a powerful, like this is where you need to be now more than ever and how powerful it is even to the best of us to realize how much our identity and worthiness are tied up in our titles and our like what the external is versus our body of work and who we are. And you you talk about proving and and I I'm I suspect anyone listening to this is like mm-hmm, nodding and and resonating with that. For you with the burden of proving was it proving you were enough, proving that you you know were worthy? What was what was the nuances what to get more granular on your proving burden? Where what was driving that? To what were you trying to prove 
specifically, at least those parts of you that drove you that way? Yeah, I think, you know, for me personally, it was kind of being in this place of proving I, I am enough, you know, that I'm enough. And, you know, it, for me, proving of myself since I was a little girl, right? So, you know, if I go all the way back to, you know, young little Wendy, the environment I grew up in, you know, I was told, you know, am I just going to go to college and get married and have kids and call it a day, right? That's, that was my destiny. And I was like, really? I think it's more than that. So my sister and I were both, you know, the first two women in my dad's immediate family to go to college. So there was a big there was a big thing there. And I remember him saying, I'm spending all this money on you. I hope you don't just go get married and call it a day, you know, that you should, right? And so you get into this mindset of, am I doing enough? Am I worthy enough? And the way it would show up to me was pleasing and overworking and perfectionism and looking for recognition of people saying, you are enough. You have done good work. You are doing good things. You are making a difference. And, and so, you know, sitting in that space after I left the job and realizing I didn't feel like enough, even though I'm, I, I had done all these great things I realized was a, an opportunity for me to reframe my thinking, right? Why was I not enough? Cause I didn't get everything done. Like, what does a checklist do? You know, so it's just funny how your mind, you know, you can really create a narrative for yourself that is, that is unproductive when you're really coming from this place of proving. So I'm curious, what were the stakes for you then as you began to decide to decide what to do next and what actions did you take to help discern next steps? I know you mentioned the whitewater rafting trip, but I'm wondering if there's anything else that you decided to do as, and, and what were the stakes as you're yeah. like, okay, I got to figure out what to do at this place in my career. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the stakes were were high because because I was I was the breadwinner of the family, right? And so there was a lot of pressure to think about not only providing for my family with with my husband who provides as well. He is, you know, he he was a stay at home dad and he has his own job that he does as well. But thinking about what does change look like for me? What does change look like for us? What does change look like for our family? And we were heading into this place of being empty nesters, right? And yet I'm trying to figure out and recreate my career all at the same time. And so I felt like this the stakes were high because you know, my role in the company that I was in was very visible and I was very active in the community and I was very active in trying to advocate for stakeholder benefits and making sure that all people were being served and being lifted up. And and then I left that. And to your point, because I identified my brand with the brands of the companies that I've worked with, I had to redefine my my brand. And so honestly, being on this river trip with these women, which were, you know, we were 24 women from 29 years old to 72 years old, startup CEOs to, you know, CEOs of law firms and founders of large companies. And so we were kind of all walks of life. And I think that experience allowed me to separate a bit of myself from the companies that I worked with and really decide who is Wendy, what is my leadership brand? And where do I want to play in terms of contributing my time 
and energy to lift up others. And so it, it allowed me to start that process of separating and sort of going through, honestly, like a detox of corporate America that my proving was my paycheck and my review and having external and internal people tell me that I was worthy and really find it within myself of what's the work that I want to do that's important to me. And that that was a lot of the next steps of the process that I took. Mm. That's powerful. And and I think it's so worth noting too that the detox process involved community and it involved nature. Mm-hmm. It did not involve reading a book or a course. It was like getting out of your usual routine and getting with folks who you had a commonality, there was a thread. And so I think that that is really important that we can't do these things in isolation. And so often so many people do. Um, So I just appreciate that. I want to talk a little bit about some of your experience, work experience prior to new seasons. And, And you started your career working at Starbucks as part of the core team that developed foundational cultural and leadership development programs that which is amazing that have been not only replicated by you and your former colleagues successfully at Starbucks, but in other companies. So what practices did you put in place to hire and lead a team that truly cares about the mission and each other? Yeah, I tell you, I feel so incredibly fortunate that I was a part of Starbucks early days and in sort of their high trajectory growth days. I was there for over 18 years. I was reflecting on it the other day because I do think in many ways it shaped who I am as a person and as a human being, not just as a as a leader, but as a human being. You know, the thing that I learned at Starbucks was, you know, there was a saying that that Howard Bihar used to always say to us, who was the, he was sort of the people culture operations side of Starbucks. And I worked most closely with, with him and the people inside of his division. And he used to always say, we are in the, we are not in the coffee business serving people. We are in the people business serving coffee. And I really would tell you that through most of the nineties and the early two thousands, there was so much intention put in the company around people and around hiring people and hiring for the human being and hiring for the culture. Because, you know, look, culture eats strategy for and culture <laughs> always exists. So if you don't define your culture, culture will exist anyways. And if you don't curate and nurture and, and make sure that you are intentionally growing culture, it will absolutely eat up your strategy and spit it out because that's just the way it works. That's how humans work. And so the thing that I learned at, at Starbucks was you hire the whole person, you interview for the fit, you interview and you spend time to see if the, if the person is appreciative of the values and the mission of the company. And you put people into the front line to see how comfortable they feel in the business that you are doing. So how that showed up in day-to-day practice for me in every company I've ever worked for is a, I will be accused of doing long and too many interviews. So I'll start with that. But bringing candidates in to meet with all levels of the organization and letting them experience every level from the most senior to the, you know, literally part-time frontline person, if you can, so that you can see how they fit into the total picture and how comfortable they feel is a great 
indicator of how inspired people feel by your mission and values. And that long interview process, interviewing with different people in different places, you also get a 360 view of how that human being shows up in different circumstances. When you're walking a store, when you're sitting in a conference room, when you're having dinner, because I'll tell you what, wearing one hat, being the same person you are in your life and every aspect of your life, to me, is one of the most important things in hiring someone. I wanna know the whole person. I wanna know who you are. And I wanna I wanna hire people for their future potential, not just for the current role. So you would you would have these interviews where you'd put a candidate in all the different spaces, not just if I was gonna work in marketing. Yeah. You would put me in all is that yeah. is that correct? Yeah. And I'll tell you what, multiple times in my career. I was able to discern a person who was saying all the right things, but didn't necessarily subscribe to the mission and values of the company because somewhere along the way it presented itself in, in either a, uh, they weren't engaged or they didn't, uh, they asked questions that were canned questions or they dismissed someone because they didn't think they would ever have to work with that person. And those behaviors show up as much as the behaviors of people that you're like, "Mm, can they do the job? And then you get this feedback of like, this human being is remarkable. And if you don't hire them, we have to find a place for them in the organization. Like they are a remarkable human being. Even if they didn't have the skill, even if they didn't have the fully developed or as qualified as other candidates. And you know, I have been known to hire people that maybe weren't the best at managing a P&L, but I can teach someone how to manage P&L. I can't teach someone how to value the work that a barista does in a store and that the work that they do out of the corporate office, which we used to call the support center, is going to affect that person as a barista. And if you don't care about that barista, the truth line of that company, the truth that has to exist because you're affecting their lives is not going to work, right? You have to be able to appreciate the other people that you're impacting. And that's a vibe almost too. Like you get to, when you feel that like genuine heart, open hearted, like curiosity, excitement, but also that that gives dignity to others too. Like that, that dismissing like, oh, well, I'm never going to be dealing with, you know, the early shift barista. I'm going to be up in corporate. So I don't need to really acknowledge you like that. Like you could call BS to the stuff by just watching how they move through. And the other thing I would say I learned at Starbucks that I have replicated is if you have a mission, vision, and values in a company that is not alive and well in the company, it is not Uh, visible and experienced by the candidate, you also have a problem. So I would hear so many times at Starbucks and so many times, honestly, in other companies that I've I've worked in, where the candidate goes all the way through this whole interview shenanigans. And when they get back and I debrief and say, how was your experience? They've said, it's remarkable to see the values of the company and the mission being talked about being represented and being reinforced lived and lived and lived. I've never seen that before. I've worked at companies where it's on a wall and nobody pays attention to it. That right. always was validating for me to know I was doing my part in bringing the mission and values alive as well. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. 
Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities and take you to the not enough loop (laughs) during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the not enough loop and the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It's brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism and the not enough loop at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. What leadership practices did you learn from working with Howard Schultz, who was the CEO of Starbucks or still is the CEO of Starbucks? That you still, (laughs) I know, right? Coming back and forth. What are those leadership practices that you learn that you still practice today? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I learned so much from Howard, and I am uh, again. I'm so I'm so thankful that I got the opportunity to work with him and inside the organization. You know, I think there were a few overarching guiding principles from Howard that really is true to who I am today, both personally and professionally. I think one piece of it is you have to bring people with you. He really was a, the first time I had experienced a leader that really wanted to make sure that all partners, which is what we called employees at Starbucks because everybody got uh, stock in the company, that all partners were brought into the success of the company and that they were given opportunities to impact their work environment and impact how their work showed up and that they had a place that was a community and that could be vibrant and rewarding. It was very important for him. You know, early, early days of Starbucks, you know, we paid, our starting wages were far and above, you know, minimum wage. Our benefits were far and above more robust and offered to people at 20 hours or more, which most companies didn't do at the time. And very progressive thinking around bringing people with you and always making your decisions through that filter. You know, your stakeholders, your your customers, and your shareholders, the decision has to be in all three of those areas and make sure that everybody is benefiting. So that was number one. Serve, serve people well and bring them with you in the decisions. Some of the other things that he talked about was rituals matter. So rituals around, you know, we, the way we always did coffee tastings at the start of every meeting, when we went into stores and a new coffee got brought in, the first thing we would do is we would all do the tasting together because 
those rituals around how you come together, level sets, who you are as an employee, regardless of your title, your role, or the job that you're doing, right? You're surrounded by this product mm-hmm. that you all believe in. And rituals also meant how you treated people. You show up in a store, you talk to people, you meet people, you know each other's names. When certain parts of your experience in the company and your tenure, you went through a deep immersion of either building your technical skills or you know all the, going all the way back to what you used to call coffee culture and connection, deepening that. So those rituals matter around how you extend the village that's working together in a company. So that would be the second thing. The third thing is, you know, listen for the truth. And sometimes the truth is not overtly stated. You have to really find the truth and make sure that there is a true line between what you your vision is and what's actually happening in the company and understanding each person's experience in, inside of that. Mm. And that really ties to what Howard Bihar brought to Starbucks, which is the servant leadership principles, which is the best leadership is not about serving yourself. It's about serving others. So those are probably the, the biggest things. And then as we were growing, it was really the citizenship you know, act globally, Mm. but think locally. And remember that, no, think, I said it backwards. Think globally, act locally. That was very funny. I totally switched that around in my head. Think about the global impact that you're having. But when you are, when you are acting, make sure that you're acting in that local space for those human beings, right? That are a part of that space. Mm. So those are probably the main things. You know, he was just great about bringing people together with common vision and hiring great leaders. And and those core lessons that you learn still show up in any job. You bring those with you mm-hmm. to any job, any space that you're leading. Yeah. And and the ritual the ritual one I want to go back to too. You have this picture. It it, it has an egalitarian practice of a coffee tasting mm. where everyone comes around and it's not about title rank it's everyone sitting down i mean probably people are very aware of who's in the room but there is something about having that common experience and how that does lift up mm-hmm. um, and does connect i love that i'm just thinking and more about rituals it connects also to one more thing i want to share which is because of the trajectory that starbucks was on in the early 90s the only way that the company was going to be able to grow and be successful and maintain the culture and the purpose and the values of the company was to bring people with you, right? And Starbucks was the first place that I had experienced around a progressive thinking around diversity and inclusion. So very early days for me, you know, Wendy in her late 20s, the focus on women and women in leadership and lifting up women in the organization was an imperative in the company as well as diversity. I think that the second thing was creating jobs that were big enough for people. So there was the, because we had a need to grow, it wasn't about tamping people to a skill. It was about creating jobs that were big enough for people, let people grow in positions and, and use the growth of the company in a way to sort of fuel people's passions and let them realize their potential. And I would say those, those few things are absolutely embedded in my approach of every company that I participate in. I feel that in my body, 
listening to you talk about the idea of being in a job that I get to grow into and expand, not just because of my job description and that that's an invitation. Yes. That's an invitation and to, and that's cultivated versus stay in your lane and don't think out of your box and don't comment out here. And that I feel like that is what, what I experienced has been more of the norm than what you're talking mm-hmm. about. And you were doing this 20 years yeah. ago and these kind of things are talked about right now. Like it's all edgy and new, you know, you're, you're in the original yeah. space of this yeah. and, and, and it takes a lot of capacity as a leader and forward thinking and very focused on not just, I mean, we have to look, I mean, when you have a business, you look at bottom line, you have to look at laws and regulations and ethics and all those things, but not forgetting the person and how they're so inextricably connected versus how do we just retain people? It's like not this high level thing, but how do we really invest and grow our company with these great leaders? Yeah. It starts with hiring well, and then it's, and I'm seeing it's like the hiring well, man, that process is huge, of course. But then this cultivation and the permission to grow, expand, iterate is an an invitation and is cultivated. Yeah. Oh my gosh. My, my just, I'm like hungry for that. I'm hungry to see and hear about more of that. And we were really challenged to see uh, talent beyond the current role, right? Is, is the succession. That is a challenge. It is. And, And the succession planning sort of philosophy of the company was not just about how are they doing in their role today? It was about where are their strengths and where do we see them going? And it's not about the next job. It's about the job after that. How do we get them to the job that is two jobs next, right? And, and realize their potential. And, you know, I will tell you, you know, there was a, a few, to the credit, there was a few men at the time in the early 90s running Starbucks who understood the value of sort of creating that freedom within talent and really allowing the diversity, you know, of people of color as well as gender to propagate in the company and grow, that the power of that was going to be very strong for the company. And and there were a couple of leaders at the time who identified, I want to say there was probably 10 of us, maybe 12 of us, you know, all at very like manager level in the company. And they saw potential in us in our late 20s that none of us really could see in ourselves. And and because of the way they organized the company around this philosophy of, of create jobs that are big enough for people, every one of us went through probably 10 plus years in the company growing and growing and growing. And every one of us today are C-suite leaders somewhere in the world. Wow. And we are just a small microcosm of an example of a large population that that was done for in all aspects of the company, which is remarkable. So I have tried really hard to replicate that in, you know, when I'm, when I'm running companies or I am coaching CEOs and companies of look at your talent, not just for how they're doing today, but create the jobs that are big enough for them in the future? And do you see where their power is and their superpower is? And what are you doing to unleash that? Because that is the success of a company. So on that note, you have since developed this niche, you know, after your, you know, your hard stop 
and the couple of years of reflection and uh, a pandemic, <laughs> you have <laughs> since developed a niche of serving as an kind of inner interim or what you call an interlude CEO for companies. So I'd love for you to share what it's like to be brought in to a company because of an issue. You shepherd the organization with that in particular task in mind. And then, you know, that that's go there when a company is going through something not so great, you help them with that and then you leave. What's that like? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I'm loving it. So it's it's funny because this this in some ways kind of fell into my lap. I <clears throat> I took a little bit of time off, but then one of my passions is to really pay forward and help some of the up and coming leaders, whether they're founders or CEOs of organizations to grow and accelerate in their roles. And in particular, women and people of color. And I fell into a role actually twice. So two different companies where, where there were just happened to be incredible humans that I know that said, gosh, I could re- I could really use your help, Wendy, here. And I, I kind of stepped into a consulting role and, you know, helped in their organizations. And I started to get this idea of there's so many companies right now that are wanting to accelerate the mission and values of the company and wanting to integrate this idea of progressive thinking and inclusion and growth all together, but they don't necessarily know how, or they're in a change management situation where they've lost a leader and they're trying to figure out well, what kind of leaders do we need? And so I've been calling them like interlude CEO or sprints, right? It's like the in-betweens. It's the in-betweens, these roles. And so I started to t- sort of test this idea of, could I go into a company that's in a transition or has a need? And what would that look like? And it has been so much fun. So the reason why I love it is A, I've got, if you looked at my resume, I've got the craziest background ever. I am not a straight line industry person. I have been in clothing, retail clothing. I get yeah, you do. I've been in retail clothing. I've been in coffee. I was in early childhood education. I was in grocery. So like, I've got this crazy background. And when I When I really think about what is it that inspires me, it's about going into purpose-driven companies that have an opportunity to make a difference in the lives of their customers, their employees, their communities, and and sort of accelerating that impact. What has been great about this is I've done it a few times now where I've gone in and people are, are wanting to be involved in the success of the company and in the sustainable practices of the companies that they believe in down to their bones, right? And sometimes just need the coaching or the opportunity or the voice to be able to bring that forward. So it's so fun to go in and find people's voices, but also help boards and investors and shareholders understand that you can change a strategy, you can shift your leadership approach, and you can unlock so much potential that is that is rewarding for everybody and watch the light bulbs go off and then you watch the momentum start. It is, it is a very fun place to be. And in this last interim role I did, getting the leadership team set up, getting the strategy in place, helping the team to be successful, I then rolled over onto the board, which was incredibly gracious. And so it's super fun now because I get to still be a part of it, <laughs> which is great. 
So I'm sitting here, there's been this vibe I've been working through as I'm listening to you talk. And I feel like I do every time I sit and listen to you talk and we connect and I'm realizing I've not been exposed to female leaders like you minus two people that I could think of in my life. And I'm 50 and I've worked a lot of different jobs that that sense of there's, I, there's not competition. It's I'll make time for you. It's what do you need, but there's still boundaries. Maybe there's a little proving still hanging out there. I don't know, but, but there's something really different as I'm listening to you talk. I'm kind of parts of me are like, kind of, where's the edge going to come? Where's the kind of like, you got to suck it. Where's there, there's something that I just kept seeing so much, like you do your time. It's, you know, and there wasn't the investment. There was a, who do you think you are? You know, there was just a lot of those messages mm-hmm. that I know the leaders that I was working with and under, that's what they got too. Mm-hmm. And so obviously the contagion that you got, you know, in your job at Starbucks is, has played through, but I mean, do you see this with other female leaders? that didn't have the mentorship that you had that had to figure it out on their own or still detoxing from that scarcity from you know well and it's still there i mean oh my gosh sexism and misogyny yeah toxic masculinity supremacist culture all of these things but it seems like you know and you face it and you face it every day that's not the issue it it's somehow you have the skills and you don't look like it's me or you it's we mm-hmm. That really is the sense I get every time I talk to you and I hear you share stories of your work experiences. And that is not the norm. And yeah, I'm just wondering, you must hear from other female leaders like myself that say, wow, this is different. Yeah. How you're leading is different. Yeah, I do. I do. And you know, I listen, I I am sure people that I've worked with and my husband would tell you I'm not always smelling like roses. Yeah, I have my opportunities. I'm Men. human. I am so human. <laughs> I definitely make mistakes. And I would also say I am not afraid to make hard decisions or give hard feedback. But I think the difference that I've heard reflected to me, and again, I have to go all the way back to my early Starbucks days and the incredible uh, leaders that I had coaching and developing me, is you don't don't have to be a bitch to do it. And, you know, I don't have to show up and command. What I've learned is people buy into philosophies and um, agreements and decisions more when they feel like they're a part of the process. And so the practice of bringing people into the we and listening and hearing, where do you, here's what I'm thinking. Where do you sit? Why do you sit in that place? And let me explain to you why I may agree or disagree and exchanging in the dialogue where they feel seen and heard and valued ultimately helps to get to a place where it's not about just doing what everybody wants to do. It's about once we get to a decision, everybody understands the decision. And sometimes they may not like the decision. Sometimes I may not like the decision, but ultimately we can agree that it is the best way to move forward. And I think what's different in that is, and you said it earlier, I am willing to take the time to listen and to ask the questions and to see the person as a whole person versus just a person in a specific job description. And how that shows up is understanding life is complicated, especially during the pandemic, right? We all did our jobs. I was in an interim role during the pandemic, working with people over Zoom from a different state. Like it was hard, right? 
But just taking the few moments and connecting and seeing where people were at and bringing them into the conversations, ultimately you actually get better dialogue, you make decisions faster. And I think the team becomes a much more high-performing team because they feel like they fit and they're a part of it. Women in particular, I think, struggle with this and struggle with sometimes having their voice heard at the table. And that is probably the biggest thing I coach when I'm in an interim role and or when I'm coaching female CEOs is like you, you have a seat at the table, you've earned your seat at the table, you have to use your seat at the table. So I do think it is a, it's probably a different experience than most people have had. You said a few words, seen, heard, and valued, and people buy into these philosophies when they feel a part of their process. And seen, heard, and valued are Brene's defi- Brene Brown's definitions mm-hmm. of connection. And trust is built on these small moments of connection. And then you have trust, then you can give the hard feedback and it's received. And you don't get into these gender kind of BS of, oh, you're just being a biatch. It's, oh no, she cares about me. She's calling, she's calling BS or calling me in or up and my worth and my safety aren't on the table or I'm not just getting picked on or targeted because there is connection and trust that's been deepened. So I end up kind of mapping that out in my head as I hear you talk about that and take the time, take the time to listen. That's I think a huge takeaway. Yeah. My word of the year is slow, Wendy. Yeah. (laughs) And it's slowing my brain down and my presence down and like, no, my to-do list and the tyranny and like my commitment to, I don't want to be late. And I, you know, the proving, right. There's probably, I'm going to tease that out. The proving that gets in the way of taking time in important relationships. So I, I just think that's powerful. I think it's, you're spot on. The other thing I would share is I think, I think the space that I also create for people is it's okay to fail and it's okay to fear. It is not okay to not learn from those circumstances and you have the support to do so. And I think, I think for a lot of women in particular, the fear of failure and the fear of when you do fail, not being in an environment that is accepting can create a very difficult dynamic to show up as a, to show up as your best self. And that, that segues to my next question that, you know, perfectionism and authentic leadership, they can't exist together. You know, you really embody, you know, not hashtag authentic, like you embody and live authenticity. That's been my experience with you. So for you, I mean, you talk about this in a systemic level, but for you, what is your relationship with failure and mistakes today? And how do you navigate the proving and hustling of perfectionism when it still shows up for you? Yeah. You know, I, I was horrible at failure for a really long time, like horrible. If I thought I failed or I did fail, the amount of sort of beating myself up and tearing myself up and talking bad to myself in my head was horrible. Partly because again, you know, I, I was in an environment and I think it was common when I was growing up in that, in those days that, you know, whether you were at school or at home, failure was not an option, right? You were sort of like do better, you know, kind of thing. And I had a very, I, I say today, like all of my failures now are very public. Like every time I fell big, I felt big and I felt public. So I've had to learn to be very humble about them. 
my biggest failure, my biggest learning was I was put in charge at Starbucks of creating, uh, it was called the snapshot program where like external people went in and they bought a cup of coffee and they raided the stores and they, they, you know, there was a, there was data and, you know, you got, you got evaluated on it and we reported those stores to Wall Street. So it was part of our reporting package that how our customer service was doing. And I was in charge of the program and I, we needed to move to a new company. And so I led that RFP process and we selected the new company who I really liked, right? Thought they were going to do really well. And the first quarter they went live, they completely failed at the job. So we had no data, their systems broke down, they completely unraveled. And I had to go tell the CEO at the time, Orrin Smith, that I had nothing to give him to go to Wall Street, Wall Street. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to be fired. I am going to be fired. There is no freaking way I'm going to survive this. And I was so, I thought I was going to throw up. And my boss at the time said, well, you know, you're going to need to go in and tell him. And my suggestion to you, Wendy, is to be honest and truthful and just talk about what you're doing to resolve it and what you've learned from it. And let's see how this whole thing goes. So I, the reason why I'm sharing the story is because it had such an impact on me. I went into the office, I told him the story and he sat there very stern and like looking at me with this very, you know, face. And I gave him the whole story. And at the end I said, Orin, I'm so sorry. I, I, I thought we picked the right company. We didn't. I know this puts you in a predicament. I'm so sorry. And he looked at me and he said, what did you learn from this experience? And I told him, you know, I had all my, I had all my bullet points, told him all my bullet points, you know, and part of my bullet point was one of my bullet points at the end was, and what I've learned is sometimes you can't control the things you can't control. You can only respond to them. I can't control their systems. They told me they had it. They don't. So now I have to make a different decision and find a new company because they are not able to work with us. And at the end of my bullet points, he looked at me and he said, you know, Wendy, as long as you understand what you've learned from this and you can apply it moving forward and it makes you better at the decisions you're making, I'm okay with it. And I'll tell Wall Street, we don't have the numbers. It's all okay. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, I was ready to like pack up my bags. So his graciousness and his ability to allow me to have this failure to learn, and he was allowing my learning process has always helped me now with my future failures, right? Is I always look at it as, okay, I failed. What am I learning? How do I apply it? How do I move forward? How do I be humble around it? How can I be vulnerable around it? And most importantly, how do I ask for help around it? So that that's really been my relationship with failure. I still struggle. I mean, when I think I don't do something right, it could be not making my lasagna right at home. And I didn't read the recipe right. Like I, it is an internal struggle that I face that I constantly have to just stare down and say, it's okay. This is part of being human and I'm learning. And when I get into that place of the perfectionism's voice is becoming too loud for me, right? That I'm not, I'm not good enough or I should be doing better. I try to rewrite the narrative of proving, right? Going all the way back to this need to prove and say, I am proving right now that I am human and I am still learning 
and I am still growing and I am still able to ask for help and admit my mistakes. And that is my truth. And that is the other big sort of linchpin, right? That helps me through those moments. That is a powerful reframe. It's not dismissing the proving altogether. It's just reframing it. And it's like, yep, I'm proving I am deeply human. Hello. I am flawed and I am okay with my imperfections and that is okay. And it's just, you know, it's a constant reminder. Wendy, is this what you thought you'd be doing today? Being an interim interlude sprint CEO? Is this what you thought you'd be doing today? (laughs) No, (laughs) no, no, it isn't. And it is not. And in fact, I am excited that this journey has taken me to a different place than I was expecting because I feel I'm just about to kick off formally my consulting business that I'm calling um, Better Way Business with Wendy Colley. And the reason why I'm doing that is because I'm finding that this interim interlude CEO and this ability to coach incredible purpose-driven leaders right now is actually a more impactful, faster way of embedding leadership practices that I think can make the world a better place. And that inspires me. I don't need to make more money for a shareholder. I want to make the world a better place. And so this journey has taken me to a place that I think ultimately is a much more powerful use of my time. And I learn every day from many more people that I'm working with and new companies that I get to work with. So I feel incredibly fortunate. Well, I am glad that you're in this role with these sprints, because that means there's more organizations and more people you get to impact for the better and for the greater good. Do you have a moment for some quick fire questions before we wrap up? Okay. What are you reading right now? Okay. So I'm reading a series that actually is called Murderbot. (laughs) Yeah. It's called the Murderbot (laughs) series. I know it is actually about a hybrid human robot. It is a sci-fi. It's it is it, it won the Nebula Award winner for it's like little novelettes, like six novelettes, and it is it is absolutely enjoyable, and you can like read the entire book in a week if you want to. My kids recommended it to me actually, who found it, and it's by oh my goodness, Martha Wells. So it's called okay. The Murderbot Diaries by Martha Wells, and it is not something I normally read, and I'm loving it. What song are you playing on repeat these days? Florence of the Machine, her new album, Dance Fever. It is so good. I was just listening to it. It is so good. I literally, since it got released, I've just, it has been on repeat right now, repeat, repeat. And like, I'm starting to get into the the nuances of each song and it's just unbelievable. She's a brilliant She's writer. Brilliant. And of course, an amazing redhead too. Yes, so yes, I'm yes. A kindred spirit for you. <laughs> What's the best TV show or movie you've seen recently? One of my favorite TV shows recently was The Great which is, it, it is just different and unique. It might be a little product provocative for some people. I just thought the writing and the, the story between the king and the queen was remarkable. And then I loved Coda. I thought Coda was brilliant. I just thought everything about it, art, from an artistry standpoint, disability standpoint, storyline, loved it. So Coda and The Great are my two. What is your favorite 1980s movie or TV show or piece of pop culture? Well, I have to, I have to go to uh, When Harry Met Sally because it's pretty much the story of my husband and I. So it is, holds a very deep place in my heart. Yeah, we were, we were best friends before we started dating and got married. So it's kind of our, our little story. So we love that movie. That's awesome. 
The West Coast version of when Harry met Sally. Exactly. We were we the, West the West Coast, Coast version. Yes. And we even met in college. Like that's, that's like how true the story is for us. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. What is your mantra right now? Oh, that's easy. Hands off our bodies. Oh, sorry. No, don't be sorry. I, I, no. That is, we- I, yes, that is my, I will say that until I don't need to say that anymore. We will not go back. Yes. We will not go back. What is an unpopular opinion you hold? I will not watch or buy anything from the Kardashians or Goop. <laughs> <laughs> you, you might have some people with you on that one. <laughs> At least in my circles. And, and who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? Two things. I think one is I think the world needs a lot more better humans. So I want to help. I want to be better so that I can help uplift others as well. So we can get more better humans out there. And I think the other thing is my kids. I want the world to be a better place for them. I co-sign that too. Wendy, this was a real, a real pleasure and a real honor for me. I am so excited for people to have a chance to listen to your heart and your wisdom and to scale it in this way too. Really grateful for your time. Really grateful for your heart and your leadership. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you. It's an absolute pleasure. And um, thank you for taking the time to hear my story. When we focus more on proving our worth and living our values, we often end up letting everyone down, especially ourselves. Sure, when we want to earn trust, we do the work to provide evidence to earn that trust. But for those who identify as a female or in any marginalized group, the proving never seems to end. And for anyone who identifies other than straight white cis male, the need to keep proving our worthiness and our abilities again and again and again takes a toll on how we show up at our workplace and in our lives. In fact, the constant proving can feel straight up abusive and dehumanizing. Wendy taught us the importance of identifying when our proving has taken us to the not enough loop and how our values can be an anchor when we feel pulled away from what matters most. So I'm curious, what triggers your not enough loop? Where in your life do you feel like you have to prove your worth right now? Who or what helps anchor you when you feel unsafe or less than? In this world and this culture, I find it near impossible not to enter the not enough loop, and it's unrealistic to think we can avoid it altogether. Therefore, we need to stay clear on our values and stay connected to trusted support systems. Therefore, we need to stay clear on our values and stay connected to trusted people and support systems so we can recalibrate and orient when our worthiness and safety feel threatened. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, Sign up for the free Unburdened Leader weekly email and find free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 